Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 40. This week we were treated to a bit of a surprise. At least it was a surprise to me. Apparently Tim Scott got the memo. Somebody <laughs> somebody knew there was going to be a joint session of Congress and that this was happening. I didn't know until it was happening. It was going it was going live when I realized that it was happening. Now people are calling it a state of the union. It's not a state of the union. The state of the union is a specific address from the president at a specific time of the year to a joint session of Congress that is regular. This was special. This was a a called joint session of Congress for the purpose of addressing them. The president can theoretically do this whenever he chooses to, but traditionally they do it with the State of the Union. But in many ways, Dan, it serves the exact same purpose as a State of the Union. It's a chance for the president to present... First of all, everything that he's accomplished recently, you know, in this case, he's talking about his first hundred days in office, talking about all the promises he's made and all the things he's accomplished. And then the second thing it allows the president to do, just like in a state of a union, is talk about his grand plan for the future. State of the union is not is not a time for talking about things that haven't gone well or things that have gone <laughs> by the wayside. It's definitely a very positive speech and a very uh, hopeful speech. And that's exactly what this is here, you know, where he presents everything he'd like to accomplish, you know, the things he wants to get done in the near future and how they're going to help people. Right. And to specifically address Congress is to suggest, well, well, it serves two purposes. One, this makes it a bigger deal than a press release to have everybody there. This makes it a, a big formal event. But it also allows you to speak to Congress in a way that you at least at least hope they're listening, which is critical for him because very little legislation has passed and almost all of the things that he actually wants to do and promised to do require legislation. Yeah, in many ways it is a sales pitch. He's telling Congress what he'd like them to pass. Mm-hmm. But there was one surprise in there. Most of it is not surprising. As we said, it's a, it's a state of the union. State of the unions are as predictable as they are boring, and they rank extremely high in boring, and they're extremely predictable. (laughs) In case that was, I realized that some people may not have listened to a State of the Union. Don't bother. (laughs) Don't bother. They're generally among the most boring things you could listen to, where they pat themselves on the back and everybody claps like lunatics because, I don't know, that's what you do in politics, you clap. (laughs) If I were president, I would immediately Stop that. We're not we're not clapping here. I'm going to say my piece and you're going to get back to whatever it is you're doing with your life. That's more important than standing here clapping for these lines I probably didn't even write. (laughs) Somebody wrote because they thought they would pat the right people on the back. See, you're thinking of it the wrong the wrong way, Dan. If I were president, I would try and get Congress to clap as much as possible. You know, let's keep them away from being in session and let's get them (laughs) clapping. (laughs) Fair enough. Going to have a State of the Union every week. (laughs) You know, if if we get nothing done, oh well. (laughs) That's the entire point. I like it. I like it. This is this is a. I I I would I would be the Stonewall president, Dan. It's the 200 IQ play from President Brad here. Brad for president. (laughs) So of course his common theme is unity. He wants to unite, and I think I finally understood what he means by that here. I know what politicians mean when they say unite. They say they what they mean is let's do the thing that I want to do and it requires your vote. So come <laughs> join me. This is this is how most political people talk, right? They get they set themselves up on some kind of high ground and then they say you have to come to me and if you were just willing to work with me this would be done. That's so callous but it's so right. Because if Joe Biden was saying let's unite in the middle, that would mean that he's abandoning all the principles he believes in. You know what I mean? No one mm-hmm. on his side wants him to be saying that. So really when he says unite that is the only thing he can mean. He means we are on the right side. We are in the right. So come over and join us. Unite with us on the winning side of history. <laughs> on the winning side of history. <laughs> That's what he means. That's what he means. So, all, And all of this is perfectly predictable and normal. That is true. Here's where it did surprise me. He sets up the need for this. There's got to be some kind of push. What is, what is the impetus on us to get these things done? 
And on that note, I was really surprised by the way he decided to frame it. Because you could say, there's terrible things happening and we got to stop those. Or there's some kind of existential threat. COVID has been that existential threat for a while. For a long time. For a long time. That's, it's, that's the role it's served. There's some kind of emergency. The emergency here that is justifying the requests that he makes, which we'll get into, is competition with China. To which I responded with, oh, well, there goes Trump again, talking about China as the big bad enemy. You really could put a lot of these lines in Trump's mouth. We had talked about how, how weird it was to hear Biden when he was running for office, when he was running for president against Trump, how he was the one that was doing the like strong foreign policy rhetoric. I'm going to be tough on China. And we said that he was going to be virtually the same on China. If anything, he would try and do a little more. And in terms of rhetoric, that is, that is what he's done. He's made a few statements. He's, he's imposed a few sanctions that mean far less than that word implies. As we've discussed, they, they did essentially nothing. They were just flicks on the air. I think he's doing this because Trump has spent, you know, four years painting China as the boogeyman, as the big enemy. And Biden, in his effort to unite people on his side, is trying to leverage that that fear effectively. It's something I think Biden is trying to do is he's trying to argue to the common man Republican and say, Republicanism is not for you. The left is actually going to look out for you better than the right is. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he's and he's making he's making a call for them in this speech. When we've talked about the infrastructure plan, which we're going to talk about more because he talks about that more in this speech, large chunks of it are targeted at the common working Republican Absolutely. individual. Absolutely. The group that, that Trump claimed. Yeah. So appealing to the fear of China speaks directly to those people because those are the people who have been listening to that claim for the last four years. So in terms of a, a political speech, it is effective. Yes. It is effective to, to call on those old demons. Yeah. And that, that's coupled with a surprising lack of discussion on things like racism. Yeah, he mentions he mentions China four times in the speech and the word racism only twice, which is surprising for a president <laughs> yes. who's who's talked about that more than any other. Right. You would have thought that would have gotten 15, 20 mentions in this speech. So he comes in and he says, we can't stop now. He points to his his achievements, his job growth, which has been excellent. Turns out when you tell people they can't go to work, jobs go down. And then when you tell them they can, jobs go up. And dramatically, it's shocking, Dan. It is shocking. It is shocking. It's, and I, we were we were joking about how if he wants to claim this record, like if the goal is to set a record for fastest job growth, that was your goal as a president. It's really easy. You just don't let people go to work, and then you let people go to work, and that and that's what's happened in a number of states with the COVID lockdowns. There have been large swaths yeah, of people because so much of the economic downturn was because of these artificial barriers. Yes. And so when you remove the artificial barriers, you know, the floodgate opens and business resumes yeah. and it's a huge uptick, which is fantastic, but... Yeah, we built a dam. We removed the dam. Water is flowing again. But it's important for us to make it clear that he's not creating these jobs. We're, we're, we're simply getting out of the way. And when we mean we... It's mostly the states that Biden mm -hmm. has gotten mad at for opening up. He's he's yelled <laughs> yeah. at them for opening up and then taken credit for the job growth because of that opening up. <laughs> if that's not politics, I don't know what is. So, <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. That's it. That is exactly that, what's, that's happening. what's happening. That's exactly that is what's, what's happening. happening, Dan. So he he then goes and he talks about this progress. Right, we're making progress in all these ways. Jobs, COVID vaccines are are out there. Quote. But we can't stop now. We're in competition with China and other countries to win the 21st century. Close quote. And then he gets into this. He talks about conversations he's had with these autocrats, as he describes them, who look at democracy as this extremely inefficient government because you have to get everybody on board and people just don't get on board. They don't unite. The problem is a lack of unity. The autocrats see us as being fractured and thus unable to come together to do the things that need to be done that would carry us into the 21st century and allow us to continue to be on top in terms of economy. The economic competition with China that we must win. There is so much wrong with this way of thinking that to even describe it that way, this is one of the things that I hated most about Trump. 
This is one of the things I hated most about Biden. This is one of the things I hated about Romney when he was running. This is a constant thread that both parties essentially agree on, that they see our engagement with another country as primarily competitive. Yeah, it's as win-lose. Someone is going to win the 21st century and someone's going to lose it. Right, and he doesn't want to We are playing it. Monopoly with China. Yes. Either they are going to win or we are going to win. And the other one will lose. Not just come in mm -hmm. second, but we'll, we'll lose. We'll lose. Yeah, it's not a race. That's why I chose Monopoly because yes. you don't win by being a little bit faster than the other guy. You win by taking. destroying the other guy, <laughs> right. taking all of their resources, right? That is leaving them with nothing. So then he he uses this. This is a competition with China. This is our impetus. This is why we must make these once in a generation investments. Now you should be cynical if anyone tells you this is going to be a one time thing in politics, <laughs> especially given that included in this is extensions for all of the emergency things done in the COVID bills. Right? We. <laughs> At least, yeah, or not at least all of them, most but of them. I'm sure, but many of them, the, the big ones, are going to be extended. So you should be cynical when you're when someone says once in a generation. I feel like every bill is almost sold in that that manner, with the exception of the standard budget bills. Yeah, anything that costs a significant amount of money is sold as once in a generation. But apparently, generations are about one to two years. <laughs> I I thought it was longer, but what do you do? The human lifespan is shortening, or at least their attention span is. It's, it's the gener it's the yeah, it's the length of their memory is what we're actually looking really at what here. we're talking about. <laughs> That's what has to expire before another one can pass. The big news here, or related news to this, is that the bill that we discussed before, the, the infrastructure bill, is getting rebranded and has had children. <laughs> In fact, I would say that what happened is it it died, but not before it gave birth to two healthy babies. I, I was about to say it died the way Hydra died. You know, its head was cut <laughs> off and two heads replaced it. We now have the American Jobs Plan, which is one bill of about $2 trillion, and the, and the American Families Plan, which is similar. Together, they add up to about $4 trillion. I think it's like $1.8 and $2.2. Well, yeah, the good news is the numbers are still loosey-goosey so it could be more it could be less but it'll be more but <laughs> it could be it could be more they talk as if it could be less it's definitely more <laughs> can you imagine government making an error on the cost where it actually turned out to be much less <laughs> we thought it would cost two trillion to uh to fix american families but it only cost 500 you know billion yeah. The, the, Who knew? I, I don't think that's even possible. I think they decide we're going to send X amount and then we're going to send more if necessary. Yeah, exactly. So there's it's there's not a even on the table. It doesn't suddenly work more efficiently because the goals are never defined well enough for there to be success. Efficiency is stop. never the goal. Yeah. Yeah, right. right. You never say, we were trying to do X and we did X and we have money left over. So it's just going to go back into the, the fun. That, then that's not how it works. A bureaucracy. This is a first rule of bureaucracy. If you're in a, and this, this occurs in businesses too, you have a budget. And if you do not spend all of that budget, your budget will be reduced next year. So you spend all of that budget mm -hmm. so that it's increased next year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you want to, you want to hit that line. Rand Paul does one of my favorite things any congressman does when every year he returns the money that he didn't spend. And it's, usually a fortune because they give they give congressmen a ton of money they can spend on their their staff and all these different logistical things because it's very expensive to spend our money right and there's no incentive for them to spend less but he just does and returns it. which they then put forward as a down payment on their next next american families plan or american job <laughs> hopefully rand is is, is helping out here because we're gonna need it <laughs> let's hope he's saved a lot we're racking up the debt. Let's talk about these two halves of the same coin now, Dan, and about what we're doing here. Biden has, has teed us up here where we are in competition with China and other countries, but China, we need to revamp our country in order to compete. And that's why he has two sides of the coin, because the one side... The American Families Plan, it's it's education. Education is the big thing that he pushes. He talks about the fact that we were able to go to the moon in the past and create technology and... and Intercontinental railroads. 
all of these amazing accomplishments and they and they occurred well they occurred first of all because of public education public education was the key that allowed us to succeed and so we need to expand and improve public education so what does that actually look like well he wants four more years of free public education two years on the back end two years on the front end he wants public school to be starting two years earlier and he wants two years of free community college at least at least and we'll, we'll go from there because we were confused at first if we thought he were talking he was <laughs> talking about uh 16 years of teaching two-year-olds one-year-olds how how young does can a child start school and that's an excellent question dan because it makes me it reminds me of plato's republic get the kids uh, away from families as early as possible and put them in environments where you can control their outcomes well control their not their outcomes but their environment in order to give them an equal shot and this is along that vein have kids start two years earlier to try and limit the influence that their neighborhood their economic factors as well as their family factors have less impact on where they end up i think that's something that biden believes in very strongly is to control for those factors as much as possible yeah and if you can get them into school then you know what they're doing and then the other side of that coin is the infrastructure part, which has been rebranded as the jobs part. And that is all about two things. It's investing in technology infrastructure. So it's it's in modernizing infrastructure. And it's about greenifying infrastructure, greenifying technology. It talks about how he wants to make things 100% clean which is of course incredibly ambitious on on many different fronts. <laughs> Here's what he said. The American Jobs Plan will create jobs that will lay thousands of miles of transmission lines needed to build a resilient and fully clean grid. So not 100%, but fully. Fully clean grid. Meaning uh, presumably that it's going to use nothing but green energy. What that what exactly that means is not is not clear, but but the implication is is pretty clear about about being being green energy as close to 100% green as possible. And of course, he argues that this will create, as that quote suggested, this will create many jobs, right? If you're going to do X, it takes people to do X. So job creation. Well, and he takes it one step farther. He takes it and says, the fantastic thing about this American jobs plan is not only are we going to make things green, and make things technologically advanced and superior so we can compete with China, it's also going to create millions and millions of good jobs. You know, he's got a quote in there when he talks about, you know, when I think about green, I think about jobs, jobs, jobs. And that's really the secret is that the Green New Deal, the green change that's coming about is not going to cost us, it's actually going to benefit us. It's a win-win-win, as it were. Once again, it's a miracle cure. I, we're trying to summarize some of these things before we really start critiquing this. But that hurts. That, that physically hurts me <laughs> to have someone <laughs> describe it that way. That it's about jobs, jobs, jobs. That is sheer propaganda. That is the most, he, and maybe he doesn't even know it. He, he probably doesn't know it. <laughs> but, uh, but that is such economic bs you see we're reading that i'm trying not to laugh or cry into the microphone <laughs> you know it's funny dan because when we first talked about the stimulus packages you know almost a year ago now you know many months ago talking about the first stimulus package and about the fact that they might do a second which is funny with us three three into it now but we talked about the fact that you know if you can create money out of thin air if you can create resources without it costing anything they should really just keep doing this how we've regretted the fact that they listened to us dan because uh because they are <laughs> they they realized they realize that too. In many ways with these, here we're talking about $4 trillion between these two packages. And at least politically, they've realized that people will accept this. People will accept that the benefits far outweigh the costs and the costs in the end turn out to actually just be more benefits. It's so strange. It's like some kind of twilight zone listening to most politicians. And this is true of Republicans too. 
listening to them talk about the way jobs are created is so bizarre. If you, for a second, don't look at jobs and don't look at money, look at resources. We produce things. We have a certain amount of metal that we have access to at any given time that we can make into steel and into other things that we then make into products. This is limited by our productivity and the number of people working at it. And so that we get a certain, we get X amount at any given moment of certain resources that we can apply to certain tasks. Anytime you try and do something different, you are redirecting a resource from one place to another. So if you're going to redirect $4 trillion worth of resources to these processes. This is people that are working on something. This is goods that are being used for other purposes. Where are they coming from? Yeah, what is the unseen cost that lies behind it? Right. There are things, if we're doing X, we can't do Y. It's not like we have $4 trillion worth of goods sitting around. If we did, the U.S. government would have to have a $4 trillion surplus, right? If they had a $4 trillion surplus, then we could talk about this in a vacuum and we could say there are a lot of goods somewhere out there because we've got these $4 trillion that, that, that are, represent these goods somewhere out there. And we should decide yeah, and it's a matter what they of should how be used we're for. going to spend those goods. Yes. At that point, we could have a discussion. We could say, is A better than B? And we could have a kind of comparison. There is no analysis at that level here, right? There are two plans here. We're going to spend $4 trillion. This is how we're going to do it. It's a yes or a no, thumbs up or thumbs down. Mm -hmm. This isn't a consideration of what would be the most effective. We, we have no access into the process. These legislation, this legislation is created behind closed doors and then is trotted out. And after all of the negotiations have happened, essentially, of any significance, there may be an amendment here and there, but in general, bills, this is what you get. But... That's dishonest because there isn't $4 trillion sitting around. That Not only are we not discussing what would be more effective to spend the money on, we're not acknowledging that these resources are being redirected from other purposes that might be more effective. And so there's no comparison at that level either. And to be fair, Biden does talk about the fact that we're going to tax the rich to help cover this. Yes, there is some tax plan. And yeah. those numbers are very fuzzy. Because we're talking about $4 trillion. This is, this is a lot of money. It's a lot of money in a very short period of time. And he's talked about increasing the corporate, the capital gains tax rate, increasing the corporate tax rate, a few different things that would only affect the, the uber rich is how the argument is going. So basically what we've created here with these two plans is we are going to fix the education system. We are going to increase in technological improvements and increase in environmentally friendly improvements to infrastructure nationwide. We're going to create millions of jobs that are going to boost the economy in terms of trillions of dollars. We're going to do all of this and to pay for it, we're going to just take some of the money from the uber rich. And that's that's the plan as it is in a whole. That's how people are processing it. As you said, it's a it's a nod to the middle class. It he is, is very. He's been so careful in this to appeal to the people that Trump claimed before. It's a meticulous approach, and it's very targeted. And that argument right there is why we're making this episode. We want to combat that argument, and we're not going to spend too much time arguing about whether or not you should greenify the infrastructure. We've talked before about some of the problems with, with green technology and, and things like a grid and other areas. That's not our focus here. We're not talking about the fact that he never mentions nuclear energy. We're not talking about where this money is actually going. We want to talk... Despite the fact that it is the most green energy in some Yeah, sense. no, there's, there's so many other things we want to talk about. But this episode, we want to talk about the economic aspect of it, which Dan has already started talking about. We want to talk about the costs and about where that money is coming from and the economic ramifications of legislation like this because they're huge. And I want to continue as we do this with what Dan was talking about jobs. The claim of jobs is an interesting one because it's one we hear time and time again from both sides of the aisle. It's about jobs, 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 as Biden says. And it sounds really good because when it comes down to it, everyone needs a job. How good your job is, is a great reflection on how wealthy you will be. It's all about your job. But as Dan was saying, it's more 
than just jobs. It's about the actual things that you have. A great example of this is World War II. World War II, we were fighting a very large war and it cost a ton of raw materials as well as as people. We had many, many people serving in the military, which means they were not producing. They were not farming. They were not mining. They, they weren't producing. Yeah, they're not providing a service or a good that you can consume that actually improves your life yeah, directly. Yeah, and they were providing a service, but not an economic service. This was a worldwide service. It was a long-term investment. And we're not arguing about whether or not that was wise. We're just talking about the cost. And so what that meant is you had a large number of people working in the United States to make up for that. It was during this time that a large number of women actually started working, which changed the United States economy even after that. The effects of that war have lasted mm -hmm. to this day. But at that time, during the war, what you had is more of the population working than it had ever worked before, working more hours than they had ever worked before, and people were on rations. There was barely enough food to go around. So even though employment was at a rate higher than it had ever been before, in terms of actual economic prosperity, the United States was struggling. Our GDP was off the charts relative to other things, right? As you said, our employment levels, off the charts. Your actual daily life, terrible. Yeah, your your economic prosperity. Ration meat, ration butter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You couldn't buy day-to-day -day goods because they weren't available even though everyone was working more than they had ever worked before because it's not just about jobs. It's about the actual economic things. And instead of producing things like butter and meat, we were producing bullets and tanks and millions and millions of other things that you needed to to operate a war. I mean, the United States cranked out aircraft carriers, thousands upon thousands of planes. I mean, it was incredible what we were able to accomplish, but it came at a very, very real cost in terms of our day-to-day -day lives. And that's the reality of how the economy works. If you focus your energy and your time on something, you can't focus it on something else. So when Biden talks about renovating, improving infrastructure, it's just like making bullets or tanks. If you spend billions of dollars and many, many man hours replacing lead pipes with other pipes, that is going to be done at the cost of doing something else instead. And that has to be factored in. That has to be factored in. Right. When we talk about going green and creating these green jobs, those green jobs who are going to be turning technology, turning infrastructure into green infrastructure, green technology. You know, he's talked about replacing uh, older buildings with new green buildings. That comes at a real economic cost. If you take time to destroy buildings that people are living in or using and replacing them with new buildings or going in and tearing out all the old plumbing and replacing it with new plumbing, all of these things are at the cost of doing something else instead. Right. I can imagine few things less cost-effective than that. You know, things that, that provide fewer benefits for massive costs than wrecking buildings down that work to replace them slightly better buildings that are slightly better in one way, but don't actually improve the lives necessarily mm -hmm. of the people living in them in any significant measure, right? <laughs> if global warming were going to wipe out the world in a year and this would stop that, then maybe it's worth it. But if what we're talking about is a few small numbers on a very vague time frame that may, may or may not actually address a threat, it's like paying people to dig ditches and fill them back in again. Yeah, and, and that's <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because that's been done before. We've had work programs where you had people put to work in order to boost the economy and whether or not their work was effective was not the highest priority. And that's simply not the right way to look at it. Just to expand on this idea before we before we move on to some of these other arguments, if you look at the what accountants do on a regular basis and what's required of them, a significant portion of of all of the labor of all of the accountants in the United States goes into navigating the tax code. There's something like billions of hours that go into filling out taxes. Now, if, if you just imagine for a moment that the taxes are way simpler, like they should be, and you cut that from billions to you know a few minutes per person, and thus you, you end up needing 
far less. What ends up happening is, is people like our current politicians will say, you're going to destroy all of these accounting jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are all these people going to do? And I would say, I don't know. Something useful, hopefully. Something other than filling out numbers to navigate arbitrary complexity. Because that provides no goods and no services and makes no one's life better. It's just a necessary evil right now. Mm-hmm. And yes, that would, that would require them to transition into other fields and things. And yes, that would be unfortunate, right? They've got training that now that then would be useless and that would be hard. And there are a lot of things you could do to try to and- mitigate that, smooth that transition. But it's just like paying people to fill up ditches and fill them back in again. What good does that produce? You know, what is what service does that provide? It doesn't provide a helpful service. Again, we have many of the most brilliant minds go into law. What does law do? Well, if it's just navigating arbitrary complexities because of poorly written laws and other things, it is wasted labor, right? They could be inventing something. They could be doing something in medicine. They could be doing something or making something, and that would reduce the cost. That would improve the, your life. There is so much labor in the economy that is not productive, that's just dealing with necessary and arbitrary issues often created by regulation and taxes and just just lawmakers you know carelessly doing things and it's one of those things where on a small scale it's easy to see but on a large scale it often becomes more difficult for example in my warehouse we've spent the last year having a company come in and replace the majority of the pipe work in our sprinkler systems because they're outdated and they have to be replaced Kind of like Biden talking about his infrastructure, replacing some of these outdated things. We've had a dedicated team. So it's contractors. They don't work for my company, but they work for another company. But that we've been paying them to to come in every day and work on these pipes for an entire year now. That we've had this team of very high paid labor working on these pipes. And when all is said and done, we're going to have what we started with which is a bunch of sprinkler pipes. And if instead my company had hired 20 individuals to instead do any number of other things, you'd be amazed at what 20 individuals over an entire (laughs) year can accomplish, whether that's doing warehouse work or building a freaking 80 foot statue to the head of my company you know that's <laughs> that's lost potential even that would be better yes <laughs> even that would would theoretically be something they could have created instead of replacing these pipes and so if you said to my company hey you're creating jobs they'd say no one way or another we're going to use this money somewhere and wherever we use it, someone's going to benefit from it. The only difference is we're choosing who benefits from it. In this case, it's the pipe fitters because we had to replace these pipes. It's not like if they didn't do that, that money would have sat in the vault. The money would have gone somewhere. That's never been an issue. Right, Pe- right. People talk about the rich people just hoarding the money. Right now, the rich are hoarding their money, and so... We need to tax them so that that money gets used. But in reality, we've talked about this before, the rich are not hoarding the money. The rich have no. their money invested, which means the rich have their money in companies that are using that money, just like my company, to do any number of things that need to get done. And believe it or not, those companies employ people. Amazon employs a ton <laughs> of people. You require Jeff Bezos to cut how much money he has invested in Amazon that's going to have real ramifications for real people. Yeah, if Jeff Bezos, as we said when we talked about it before, if he was sitting on, you know, 4,000 houses or just a vault worth of money, you know, like, like the, if that's what it was, it's not. The, the value is invested somewhere. It's in stocks, which are, as you said, are used by the company, which, which means that to remove resources from Jeff Bezos is to remove resources from the many people involved in these companies, including the workers, and to then send it somewhere else. So as you said, either way, the money's being spent and employees of some form or another are benefiting. What changes is the value of the thing that they're providing. 
That we're creating, yes. Yes. The question is not, are we creating something? We are. This money isn't sitting around. The resources aren't sitting around. Is the value of new pipes in your company, at your warehouse, better than the value that you would get from paying someone else for some other service? No. No one in their right mind would just go and pay people to replace pipes that don't need replacing. Well, and that's the thing, Dan, is that sometimes you do have to replace pipes. You know, in this case, they have to replace them because the insurance company requires a certain level of specification. And if they don't get it, they won't insure the company and will go out of business. And so for us, even though we have no interest in replacing the pipes, we have to do it because of insurance and, and blah, blah, blah. But the fact is, is there was a very real decision that was made, an economic decision about costs versus benefits. If someone came up to my company and said, hey, you should build an 80-foot statue of the owner of the company. It'll take about a year. We'll have 20 guys working on it, but it'll be really cool and it'll create 20 jobs. They'd say no way because they understand the economic costs of where it's coming from. There needs to be that conversation about the economic cost. And that's really what's lacking here with Joe Biden's vision is an understanding of the economic principles behind the world that we live in. If it were really as easy as just stealing from the rich a little, you know, if we can just tax the rich a little and we can create all this, it makes sense why there are some rich people who are like, I'm okay with you taxing us. Because if we can create this beautiful utopia with it, how do you say no to that? Yeah. Yes, technically it may be unethical, Dan. Technically, morally, it might be wrong. But how do you say no to literally just making the world this beautiful place and all it requires is that we take 1% from Jeff Bezos? Yeah, as you said, you could really see it in a in a small case. Like if there were, if there are four people on an island, and one person's fishing, one pe person's picking berries, as we've said before, one person's sewing clothes and cooking food, and one person's hunting or something, and they go, you know, I've been trading you my fish for your hunting, but we've got together and we decided that we're all going to trade you our goods for you to sing. For, an, for every day, just sing or to dance or to, or to spin in circles or to do any number of other things that don't actually contribute to our well-being. I mean, maybe those, maybe those would be worth it. Maybe they're an amazing singer. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to sit there and sleep all day and we're going to pay you for that, right? You still have a job. By Joe Biden's understanding of government, you've created a new job. So that's good. Yeah, so it's, this, it's, you've improved the island, actually. You've improved the island because you've created a new job. Everyone's better off because of that. Obviously not. Now people don't have access to the food this person was hunting for. This is precisely what's happening when we take resources that are being well used and we know they're being well used in ways that people want because they're profitable. And then you put them in areas where they are not profitable. And we know they're not profitable because they're not being used that way, <laughs> right? We, because no one would do this if the government didn't do it. And this is where like profitable is this idea that people think is so evil. Things are profitable if people want them <laughs> and are willing to pay for them. And so the very notion that they're profitable indicates that they are things people want. And the very notion that things are not profitable indicates that they're not efficient enough for them to be something people want. You know, they might want it abstractly. I would like, to, I would like a mansion. But that doesn't mean I, someone should make a mansion for me. I would not be able to pay for it. <laughs> and, and once again, on the small scale, people can always appreciate it and have no issue with it. I keep using examples from my own life, but I feel like it's, it's helpful to see an image of it. There's a mm -hmm. food truck mm -hmm. that has been coming to our warehouse. Not every, every week, but every once in a while, the food truck will come and we'll go buy food from the food truck. And we buy food from the food truck because we'd rather buy food from the food truck than go somewhere else or eat our own food and we benefit from it and we're more than happy to give that food truck our money and for the food truck to make a profit because they had the fantastic idea of showing up to a warehouse full of hungry people who've been working all day and giving them food in exchange for money. Right, the convenience. Mm -hmm. And that food truck is there because it's profitable. If they weren't making money and if they weren't making enough money to cover their costs plus some, they would never show up or they'd show up one day and never come back. 
but because it's profitable, they continue to show up again. And because they continue to show up again and make a profit, they are making money. And that's what we mean by profitable, is that it's benefiting them, which is why they will continue to do it. There's an old economic discussion about a farmer who sells his apple for $1, then a businessman buys that apple for $1, carries it into the city, and sells it for $2. And that $1 profit, people tend to agree, very commonly in academic discussions, that that businessman is stealing that $1 from the farmer or from the person who's buying it. But because yeah, he didn't somebody's create the getting apple, ripped off. Yeah. somebody's getting ripped off. He didn't create the apple. So why is he making this $1 profit? In fact, he's making more of a profit than the farmer in terms of how much it cost him. Right. The farmer might spend 50 cents investing to then make 50 cents on it. And he spent five cents. Yeah. But the, the fact is, is that that farmer is now able to sell more apples than he ever was before because of that businessman. That businessman is able to deliver apples to people who have never been able to have them before. And because of that, he's going to make a profit. If he's charging too much, then another businessman will come in and do the same service for far less. The farmer could say, look, wait a second. I could do I this. I could move them into town myself. <laughs> right, right. I've got some time. I'll buy, I'll invest in a wagon or something and, and take him in there. I'm sure he's a farmer. He's got to have something to carry stuff. Uh -huh. And maybe it'd be worth it for him to take a journey or to make or to find another partner. Or, you know, there's a million ways you could solve this problem and make a profit yourself off this idea. And people do every day. That's literally the world we live in is where people are fi finding new ways to make a profit. And they do that by serving people better. You know, we've talked about it before. Walmart is this evil monster that said, hey, we can give people, especially people who are on the, the lower income brackets because rich people don't shop at Walmart. It's middle class <laughs> and poor people who shop at Walmart. So this evil, evil corporation came in and said, we can deliver goods and services to middle class and poor people for far less than our competitors are charging. They are literally working day and night to give people the cheapest prices and that's why Walmart is this huge company that makes billions and billions of dollars is because they're out there every day making people's lives better. Is that so evil? A Even curse if it's upon them and their scale? families. Yeah, is that so evil? <laughs> A pox upon them. Yeah, there are ways you can make profits in the economy that are dishonest, and there are ways that you can make them that are unjust. And a good example of this is these bills we're talking <laughs> about. This money's going to go to private companies. Mm -hmm. These new green energy solutions are going to be private. They would never survive without this money, which is being taken from things that are surviving, without the use of force and violence to acquire funds for them. And they're going to take that and it's going to be used on them. That doesn't necessarily make them evil. It's not like they're the ones going around collecting the money at gunpoint. But if that's the root of your money, of your profit, that the police will force people at gunpoint to pay their taxes, then perhaps the service you're providing isn't that great. <laughs> perhaps the product yeah. you're providing isn't so excellent. No, and we talk about, we've talked about before, about how the market keeps getting obfuscated, keeps getting farther and farther away from a market. This $4 trillion diversion, where you're taking money from one area of the economy and putting it in another is simply going to bring us $4 trillion closer to inefficiency. It's taking us $4 trillion away from what people actually want and putting $4 trillion into what people may say they want, but don't want enough to actually spend their own money on it. These people would not willingly stop spending money on Amazon in favor of these companies that are going to be created by this bill. Yeah. People are not doing this themselves. Your own judgment would tell you if you were looking at this on the street, not from the perspective of government, but from the perspective of your pocketbook, should I spend money here or here, you would continue to spend money where you're spending it in most cases, rather than give it to these other people. Especially if you take into account the fact that you're going to give them some money that you are going to get nothing back for <laughs> yeah. not, because of the way taxes work. You may not benefit from these services and products at all 
but you're still paying part of the bill. And the other thing is because these bills are only partially funded, a huge chunk of this is going to come from inflation. And inflation, as we talked about before, is not going to just target the rich. It's going to target everybody. And because the rich have protections in place, they have information, they have resources that the average person does not have, that inflation is going to target middle class and poor people disproportionately, like it has in the past and like it will continue to do, which means that in many ways you will be paying for these programs, for this infrastructure, even if you are not actually taxed. I will be paying for these bills Everyone is going to be paying for these bills in one way or another, and that's another one of the very real costs. It's not just the fact that we're producing less efficiently. Everyone is going to directly be negatively affected by this legislation. Yeah, I've been surprised how many articles I've seen on inflation lately. There are people who have not been afraid of of inflation, who've endorsed all the policies and things, who are now getting scared, and rightfully so. My favorite is to when people go, but the Federal Reserve is confident that <laughs> things are going to be fine. Do you know what would happen if the Federal Reserve ever said they weren't confident? If they ever said, you know, guys, you should be worried. <laughs> that would crash the economy. Yeah, they'll never say that. They can't say anything else. They can't say anything but everything's fine. Because as soon as they do, it will crash the economy, even if everything actually was fine. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now is the time to panic, says the Federal Reserve. (laughs) Love to live to see that day. No, I wouldn't. That'd be terrible. That'd be the end of the dollar. So where we're at is I want to read one more quote from Biden that kind of recaps what we're talking about here. Quote, but the rest of the world is not waiting for us. I just want to be clear. From my perspective, doing nothing is not an option. End quote. And of course, it got applause. Said as a joke there, Dan. But what he's saying here is amazing. What he's saying is doing nothing is not an option. I agree with that completely. Mm -hmm. But implied in his statement is that federal government action is the only kind of action that can be done. The federal government is really the only body that can act. He keeps talking about we need to do something. We can't stop now. We must unite. We have to go forward. We have to compete with China. And what he's really talking about when he says we is we as a nation acting together through the means of the federal government. Biden has accepted full-heartedly the idea that the only body that can act is the government. And more and more people are getting on board with that. Right. Which is why the government must carry us into the 21st century. It must invest in these things. It must do this. It must do that. Or we don't progress. That's how progress is made. Yeah, exactly. If we don't spend this $4 trillion, no one will. If we don't create these jobs, no one will. It is only through our action that anything can happen. And that idea is so toxic, is so destructive, because if that's what you truly believe, then the only inevitable outcome has to be government control of the market. You know what I mean? It has to be through government action. Because we cannot operate effectively without it. We cannot act. We cannot do these good things without the government. The market Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. will not do it. The market is just full of greedy businessmen and rich people like Jeff Bezos who are trying to put us down. It's this underlying Marxist idea of class warfare that we have to overthrow these people who do not have your interests at heart. You know what I mean? We, yeah, we yeah. as the people through government have to fix this. It's the only way. Because yeah, Walmart's working against me, really. Yeah, Walmart <laughs> is trying to crush you I keep down willingly the dirt, giving Dan. them my money, but it's, it's this con ultimately somehow. Underlying it is that idea that the money and resources and the jobs are just sitting around. You got people, you got resources, you got money. I just have to put them together and then they become something. When the truth is that all of those things are already in place somewhere. You know, some yeah, people are pulling already, them out. And you're pulling them out. You're going to kill jobs to create different ones that provide what good exactly? That's the question. None of that is even considered. It's discussed as if as if it's just waiting. And this is where where his framing it against China is so interesting. Because in China, 
you get the autocrat who says we're going to do X and X happens. And then in the US, Biden thinks we need to become that efficient. Yeah. Which is why we have to unite. We have to prove to people that the people can get together in a way that allows us to be as decisive as an autocrat. We want a democracy that's as, as efficient as a tyrannical government. Please let me be a demagogue. <laughs> this is his application for demagogue status, where everyone just signs on to this very persuasive leader. But the thing is that those resources right now are being directed in a million different ways by a million different people trying to solve problems in their own life. And this is one of those costs of government that no one ever talks about. If you take $10 from me, I had a plan for that $10. I was going to buy a book for, to further my education, right? Something for school related or something to read, something that would help me think clear. Or, I or was just gonna a buy, hamburger. Or I was going to buy a hamburger. Or I was going to get some cheap flip-flops so that one of my boys would actually have shoes on his feet. Cheap flip-flops for $10, Dan? They're Go like... to Walmart. They're like $4. You're going to buy two sets I, of flip-flops and, and a couple candy I'm bars. really splurging on these. I'm these $10. are nice flip-flops. No, you're right. You're right. The plastic ones, I know. You're going because... to Target for those flip-flops? $10. What a waste. Target, what a waste of money. <laughs> I'm just... no, but, but that's the thing, is that He's acting like there is one problem, and to solve it, you need everybody. But everyone in their own life is facing a thousand problems already, and they're using the resources they have to solve them. And so to take money from those people is to say their problems are not important, even though that's the thing that they thought was most important, and that's why they're spending mm -hmm. the money on it. That's not important. What's important is that we win some kind of weird competition with China. <laughs> like, like that's, I don't care. I don't care at all whether or not our GDP is higher than China's or I don't even know what the goal is. Because it doesn't make any sense. It because doesn't make China any sense. is growing and because of their growth, they're producing more and we're benefiting from it. Right. If you wanted to make us richer, the easiest way, the, this is literally the easiest way in the world to make everybody richer. You don't have to do a single thing. You ready for this? Let them trade with each other. Yeah. Get rid of all the regulations, all the we have to win mentality laws that put in place tariffs and restrictions between us and other nations that stop us from trading freely and allowing all the countries to benefit, but especially ours. Let me buy cheap food from China and just and just stay out of it. That's all you have to do is just not interfere. Free trade is usually how it's referred to. Free trade as if as if free is a specific thing. You just have to let me trade and not not mess with it. I don't even think free is a necessary <laughs> adjective. There's trade, just trade, and then there's you. <laughs> tyrannically ruining my trade because you're a jerk, right? There's, Sorry, there's I, was, I was laughing at the, the tone in the way you said you because you were just so annoyed with this <laughs> you who's stepping in like, and saying, I know you want to trade $4 for those flip-flops. I know flip -flops, this Chinese, yeah, I know this, these Chinese flip-flops are actually $1, but we're going to mark them up $3 and we're going to take the $3 in taxes. This is just the import tax, right? Yeah, because that's the world we live in. Yes, that is the world we live in. And I go, wait, I want the $1 flip-flops, and the Chinese guy wants to sell me the $1 flip-flops. Where's, where's the evil here you're stopping? But free trade, literally, literally, you can look into this. There's, there are economists, even economists we don't agree with, you know, fundamentally on the fundamental ideas, will tell you that free trade would make everybody significantly richer almost immediately. Within a year, we're talking like you would get an extra couple thousand dollars a year. And if you let free trade with China and all these other places, Free trade would pull, would solve poverty in the world almost instantly. And we don't have it because we're protecting all kinds of other things. And because there are some tyrants who obviously are not. <laughs> no, there are countries yeah, who are not going to do it. But And the reason we don't is because politicians are not out for our best interest. They're out for their best interest. And those interests are different. And the reason free trade has never happened is because of the special interests of all the industries that are currently being protected. And those special interests, I mean, special interests in general are the primary funders, supporters, influencers 
of politicians. And there are so many different special interests. Yeah. You know, we've talked about teachers unions before as a special interest that that pushes against expanded education opportunities. And in this case, it's a very similar thing where you have special interests of these many industries who convince politicians not to act. Yeah. And the politicians don't because their primary goals are political. They want to get elected again. And in order to do that, they need two things. They need money and they need to convince people that they're acting in their best interest. And so what that means is saying ridiculous things <laughs> like we're going to tax super rich people a tiny percent in order to defeat China by creating millions of amazing jobs for you <laughs> at almost no cost and revitalizing the entire country at the same time. When you hear it all like that, it just sounds insane. You know what I mean? And we're not going to do something reasonable like get rid of all these restrictions that stop these countries from trading with each other so that we could all benefit. You put that so well. It reminds me of – I was listening to there's – there's a guy named Dave Smith. He does podcasts, shows up on podcasts. He's a comedian. But he has a similar economic approach, the same economic approach that we do. And he was talking about how like when you, when you really look at the normal things that happen in our society – and you put them, you actually state them, like pretend we weren't doing these things and someone were pitching it for the first time. They would look crazy. You'd be like, this, yeah. this is straight up a pipe dream. What are you talking about? Yeah, if we were already engaging in trade. Yes. And they came in and said, now we're going to stop trading with these countries. It would never pass. It would never happen. Can we, we're going to come in and we're going to protect this business and this business and this business and this business from foreign competition. And then we're going to tax them and we're going to do all this. If you're listening to this and you're like, wow, these guys are really passionate about how ridiculous this is. This isn't ridiculous. This is the world we live in. That's precisely the problem. It's, that's what makes it so hard to see. We've accepted so many lies, so many weird political things that are, that are wrong and that are dishonest that this is just the world people live in and it just continues we've got to find a way to to snap people out of it which is what the goal of episodes like this is to be like no this is all wrong every yeah. every word of this every word every idea here is wrong the entire discussion that's taking place about these these pieces of legislation are completely missing the point you know, it's not that we disagree with the arguments that we're making. We're saying those arguments aren't even talking about what's happening. You know, you know, they're complete they're in complete la la land talking about these issues and whether or not taxing the rich is okay when I'm saying this is not what's really happening. You know, this is completely missing the point. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fact that we're completely ignoring these economic costs to these government policies are being completely ignored time and time again, especially in this last year. It's like we as a country have given up on reality, on how the economy can actually work. <laughs> on, how, on how spending money works. I feel like Will Smith in I Am Robot, where he's like, is believing you're the only sane man in the world make you crazy? Then maybe I am. <laughs> <laughs> There are other issues here that we may get into another time, things like the education things, the Head Start. Head Start programs, it turns out, don't actually work in the long run. He actually, he cites some, some information here that cracked me up because he, he talks about how they've found that early education does a variety of things in the long run. It keeps people out of prison. It, it makes them less likely to commit crime. It makes them more likely to have further education. You'll note that he doesn't say that it, that it increases their scores when they actually get to normal grades. Because it doesn't, at least not by the time they're in third grade. But he's also conflating a couple things. There are studies on the Head Start program, and then there are studies on private preschools. And he's citing the good things he cites are from data on private preschools. Interesting. And not the data on the Head Start program, which is not good. <laughs> <laughs> our takeaway from this episode, our takeaway from what we're talking about here is whenever you're looking at any government action, Remember that it's not government action versus doing nothing. It's government action versus doing what we're already doing, which is we as people choosing what we want, and that's where we put our resources. And we're taking those resources with any government action and putting them somewhere else. And you have to remember that before anything else.
And that's what we're talking about here. And that's what this episode is, is, is about. And so if you're ever looking at any legislation, just remember that. Remember the hidden costs because they won't talk about them. And with that, thank you for listening. This has been episode 40 of the Rethinking Politics podcast. You can find us on our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com. You can support us on Patreon, which you can find the link to at our website. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll see you next week.